Well, today is the final sermon in our series of kingdom stories where we've been listening to Jesus tell us parables about what the kingdom of God looks like and how citizens of God's kingdom behave. And through these stories, we have seen over and over again that being a part of God's kingdom isn't just about knowing the right things, and it isn't even just about believing the right things. Instead, over and over again, Jesus stresses the importance of doing the right things. And today, we'll conclude our series by hearing Jesus tell a story about what children of God must go and do for those who are in need. I saved this parable for the last in the series for a couple of reasons. One reason I saved it for last is because it is so well known. Almost everyone knows at least the basic outline of the Good Samaritan parable. Even people who have never picked up a Bible or set foot within a church building know about the Good Samaritan. So I thought it would be a good idea to save the most familiar until the last. But the main reason I saved this parable until now is because it helps set the stage for our next sermon series. If you have looked at the front of today's bulletin, you've already seen that next week we will kick off a series called On Target. We'll be talking about sexual relationships God's way. During the nine weeks of that series, we'll move through a variety of issues related to sex and to sexuality. And one of the issues we will confront and explore during the series is how followers of Christ should respond to people who have been attacked by sexual sin and left beside the spiritual road half dead. And this parable will help us confront and explore what we should do and what we must go and do for those who are in need of our compassion who are in need of our care, and most of all, who are in need of Jesus Christ. So with that look forward at what is coming, let's turn our attention to today's kingdom story. We're in Luke chapter 10. We'll pick up with verse 25, Luke 10, 25. We read, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the lawyer asks a question, and it sounds like a pretty good question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It sounds like a good question, but it's a flawed question. It's a faulty question. And the problem with this question has to do with inheritance. You see, you don't inherit because of something you do. You inherit because of who you are. You don't inherit because you earn it. Your inheritance is not because of something you achieved. You inherit because you are a son, or you inherit because you are a daughter. So he asks a faulty question. And not surprisingly, Jesus doesn't answer the faulty question. Instead, like he often does, Jesus doesn't answer the question that was asked. Instead, he answers the question that should have been asked. He answers the real question. And the real question of concern is, how do you recognize the sons and daughters of God? You see, the reasoning goes like this. Since God possesses eternal life, and since his sons and daughters are the only ones who will inherit eternal life, the real issue is about identity. How can you know you are a son or daughter of the king? How can others recognize the sons and daughters of the king? And the answer to the real question of identity is the same answer to many important questions. The answer is love. Verse 26, we read the answer to the question. 
What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will inherit eternal life. So how do you recognize the sons and daughters of God? Well, you recognize them because they love They love their God. They love their Father with all their being. And they love others. Specifically, they love their neighbors every bit as much as they love themselves. And if that answer sounds familiar, it should sound familiar. See, the lawyer seems to be echoing here what Jesus had taught before about the greatest commandments. Matthew in his gospel records it this way in chapter 22 and verse 36. We read, an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. It sounds familiar because Jesus has taught this very thing. But it also sounds familiar because many of us here can easily recite that same answer. If we're asked what the first and greatest commandment is, most of us can recite, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And if asked what is the second greatest commandment, most of us can can reply and recite, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. We know how to recite the answer. For the lawyer who asked this question, and for us, it's an easy-to-recite answer. But for the lawyer and for us, it's a difficult-to-practice life. And one of the main reasons it's such a difficult life to practice is because loving people turns out to be really hard. turns out to be really hard because lots of people just aren't very lovable. And lots of people aren't very loving in return. And most of you are probably like me. See, I find it much easier to love my neighbor as myself when she is like myself. And the lawyer seems to have the same issue. And so he wants to make sure that his definition of neighbor and Jesus' definition of neighbor are the same definition. He wants to make sure he is loving the right people. But he also wants to make sure that he's only loving the right people. So that leads him to ask an important question. In verse 29, he says, wanting to justify himself, And Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, the lawyer is wanting a legal definition of neighbor. He wants neighbor defined. He wants it limited. He wants a concrete understanding of just who is in that neighbor category. And who is out of the neighbor category. He wants to know who he must love. And he also wants to know who he is under no obligation to love. He wants to know, is it my family that I must love? Or is it broader than that? And does it include all other devout Jews? Or is it even broader than that? And does it include even strangers that maybe make their way to my town? He wants a legal definition. But instead, Jesus gives him a story. And it's a story that's not intended to provide a legal definition of neighbor. 
but instead it's a story to demonstrate to whom God's children must be neighborly. So Jesus tells an identity story. It's a story that teaches how you recognize the sons and daughters of God. It's a story that teaches how you identify the heirs to God's kingdom. Let's listen to Jesus' identity story. We pick it up in verse 30. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Well, we know that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is approximately 18 miles. And we also know that it was notoriously dangerous during Jesus' time. It was dangerous because of the presence of roaming bands of bandits. We can assume that this man is Jewish, and we can assume that he's traveling this dangerous road on business. And we also can assume that when he was attacked by bandits, he resisted, and then he was mercilessly beaten. And the beating and that robbery left him with nothing. He lost all of his possessions. He lost consciousness. And because his clothing has been removed and he can't even speak, he's also lost his identity. And all of those losses are crucial to Jesus' story. See, this man, because he has lost all of his possessions, he's also lost the ability to pay for his own care or even repay anyone who would take care of his needs. And because he's lost consciousness, it isn't obvious whether he is alive or dead. You couldn't tell by just walking by. It would take a close examination to reveal if he was alive or dead. And because he has lost his identity, there's no way to even tell who he is. You can't tell from his dress because he doesn't have any clothes. You can't tell from the language he speaks or the accent he has because he can't talk. So there's no way for someone who's passing by to tell, is he like me or is he one of those different people? And that's a big question mark. Is he like me or is he different? We have to wonder, how would someone respond to this anonymous and unconscious man who's beside the road? Well, let's find out. Verse 31, we read, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, here's our first shock of the story. It's a priest. It's a holy man. It's a man who's making his way back home after a couple of weeks of temple duty, religious duty in Jerusalem. And he sees the anonymous and unconscious man, and he passes right by. It's shocking. If we think about it further, maybe his actions really aren't all that shocking. Maybe not that shocking because the priest could lose a lot by choosing to help the man who has lost almost everything. Sure, if the beaten man is a law-abiding Jew, the priest was obligated to reach out and help, but how can you tell if he's a law-abiding Jew? And what if the man's dead? If he's dead, then just approaching him would leave the priest ceremonially defiled. And even if he's alive, reaching out is going to cost money. It's going to cost the priest his ride for the remaining miles to Jericho, and it's certainly going to take up his time, his valuable time. And if he does stop to help, 
He might be putting himself in harm's way. Because who's to say the bandits are watching and waiting for someone else to stop to help and thus make themselves easy victims? It's not an easy decision. But the off-duty priest counts the potential cost of helping and passes the helpless man by. But there is still hope. This is a busy road and there are other travelers on the road. Verse 32, we read, So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he also passed by on the other side. Well, the best way to think of the Levite is as a co-worker of the priest. He wasn't a priest, but he assisted the priests in their temple duties, and he was also on his way home after his shift of religious duty at the temple. And he faced the same dilemmas as the priest, and maybe not so shockingly. He followed the priest's example by counting his potential costs and also passing by. And this is where Jesus' story takes an unexpected turn. See, the next logical person to appear on the road, the next person that would be expected in this story to appear on the road would be a Jewish layman. A man who is also a co-worker of the priest and the Levite, but someone who is further down the hierarchy. He'd be more like the assistant to the assistant. See, first the priest showed up, and then the priest's assistant showed up, the Levite. And now we're expecting the Levite's assistant to show up, a Jewish layman to appear. And there is every expectation that this third person, this Jewish layman, will be the hero of the story. We're expecting a lowly Jewish layman to be the one that will go and do the right thing. But instead of a Jewish layman entering stage right in Jesus' story, something very different happens. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. I just know that the lawyer, as he's listening to Jesus tell the story, has to be saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. The hero of this story is supposed to be a Jew. Maybe a common man, but still a Jew. And instead, the hero of your story is someone the Jews hate. Someone I hate. And when the man hates, he really means he hates. See, the Jews hated the Samaritans for many reasons, but they hated them for racial reasons. And they hated the Samaritans for religious reasons. And the Jews' prejudice against the Samaritans was very deep-seated. And it was vocal and it was often violent. See, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be the dogs of their society. And here in Jesus' story, the hero is a hated Samaritan. A hated Samaritan who counts the cost of helping, and then he pays it. See, he too risks becoming ceremonially unclean, and he takes the risk. Like the priest and the Levite, he knew that helping was going to cost him his resources, and knew it was going to cost him his ride, 
and he knew it would cost him his time. And he chose to pay all of those. But most significantly, the Samaritan knew that helping the helpless man could put him in grave physical danger. Think about it for a moment. Imagine what the reaction would be in Jericho, a Jewish town, if a hated Samaritan, if a dog came walking into your town and with him is an unconscious, naked, bloody Jew lying across his donkey. What conclusions do you think that people would have drawn? How willing do you think the Jews in that town would have been to listen to the Samaritan story and his explanation? Who was going to guarantee the Samaritan's safety? See, he knew he was risking his personal safety, and he chose to help anyway. And we can only imagine the lawyer's shock. We can only imagine the lawyer's discomfort. We can only imagine how painful it was for this devout Jew to hear Jesus' story. We can also imagine how painful it must have been when Jesus asked him one final question. He said, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And this lawyer, the expert in the law, replied, the one who had mercy on him. See, what the lawyer's replying is the truth. It's the neighbor. The neighbor was the one who loved. The lawyer is replying with the truth. It's the neighbor. The neighbor was the one who counted the cost and paid it. The lawyer's replying, the neighbor was the Samaritan. So Jesus listened to his answer and said, you're right, so go and do likewise. Jesus is telling the lawyer, you need to go and love those in need. He's telling him, you need to go and count the cost and then pay it. He's telling him, you need to be like the Samaritan. You need to be like that hated Samaritan. And that's how Jesus answered the real question. How he answered the question of how do you recognize sons and daughters of God? How do you recognize the heirs to God's kingdom? And Jesus is saying it's not by their race. And you don't recognize them by their clothes. And you don't recognize them by their native language. And it's not by their accent. Now Jesus is saying you recognize them by their love. See, God's sons and daughters love their father who they can't see by loving their neighbors who are often overlooked by others. How do you recognize sons and daughters of God? How do you recognize the heirs to God's kingdom? Well, you recognize them by their love. God's children love the overlooked because they love their father. See, God's sons and daughters love their father with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind, and with all their strength. And, and they love their neighbors as themselves. And I know I am here this morning, here among God's sons and daughters. But I also know I'm among my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters who, just like me, often have more in common with the lawyer this story was told to than with the Samaritan it was told about. And that makes this a very relevant story for us. It makes it a very timely story for us. It makes it a very personal story for us. 
See, this story is relevant and it's timely and it's personal because we struggle with the same kinds of questions that the lawyers struggled with. Don't we struggle with those same questions? See, we often ask, as sons and daughters of the king, to whom must we be neighborly? And I think in this story, Jesus gives us a very direct answer. To whom must we be neighborly? Jesus tells us you must be neighborly to all those who need a neighbor. And if we're asking on whom must we have compassion, Jesus is giving us a very direct answer. You must have compassion on all those who need compassion. We're asking when must we count the cost and then pay it. And Jesus is very directly answering you must count the cost and pay it whenever it needs to be paid to rescue one of your neighbors. See, we have that kind of compassion. And we willingly pay the price because we are sons and daughters of the true God, the true God of all compassion. And we are willing to pay the price because we are the sons and daughters of the God who paid the ultimate price for us to rescue us. And he paid it in blood. And it's right about here. It's right about at this point when things usually kind of fall apart as we begin to have discussions about this parable, this story. Some of those discussions are internal discussions. We have them with ourselves. And some of them are external discussions among ourselves within the family. And the discussions are usually about how wise it is in our violent society to stop and render aid to people who may or may not be in true need. Isn't that right? That's been my experience. So if that's where your mind is going, if you're going down that road, please bring it back. Please come back. Because that's not where we want to be, because that's not the main point of this story. You see, those safety discussions, they have some merit. But that isn't what this story is really about. See, we're aren't the heroes of a story who are being sent out to rescue helpless people that we occasionally see on the side of the road. That's not what this story is about. No, Jesus is the hero of our stories. And Jesus is seeking to rescue the helpless people that we're surrounded by each and every day. We do. We live surrounded by people. In fact, we're even surrounded by people here on Sunday morning, surrounded by people who have been attacked by sin and have been left spiritually dead. People who have been attacked by sin and sin has left them hurting and sin has left them empty and sin has left them naked and sin has left them helpless and sin has left them hopeless. And all those people need rescuing. But they don't need rescuing by us. They need rescuing by our king. Because Jesus is the only one who can heal. Jesus is the only one who can fill. Jesus is the only one who can clothe. And Jesus is the only one who provides help and hope to those who have been left for dead. So the real question, the real question for us this morning, and it's a question I ask everybody to be praying about as we go into this new sermon series the real question for us is how are we 
How are we going to respond to all of the people we are surrounded by who have been attacked by sin, especially sexual sin? All those who have been attacked by sin and have been left for dead. The question for us, my brothers, my sisters, is are we going to be people who just walk by? Are we going to be sons and daughters who count the cost and then lead them to Jesus? And my prayer is that God will help us to always be neighborly. Let's stand. Let's sing. Say.